Welcome to Discourse, a podcast that explores multiple perspectives to think deeply and connect honestly with each other. I'm Sarika Narainsing. And I'm Ann Song. Hey, Sarika. Hey, how's it going? Good. Oh, gosh. I said, hey, Sarika. My Siri turned on. Sorry. <laughs> Story of our lives over here. <laughs> um, I'm good. I'm good. Just caught up in a lot of marking, um, but that's the usual situation in this time of the year. Yeah, 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 totally. How's so like normally we would do marking online anyways. Mm-hmm. How's online teaching? Because that's kind um, of us. Yeah, that's new for us. And um, it's definitely a challenge because there's a lot of things that we need to learn on our end on best practices when it comes to online teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, spring, summer was really good practice around for us. Uh, because I feel like I have a system in place and I kind of know what I'm doing. Um, and I feel a bit more confident in, in terms of like my, when to have the modules out, um, what to expect for class meetings, how to engage students online. I'm, I'm slowly finding myself getting better and better at it. And I feel more confident. Um, what about you? Yeah, that's a good feeling. I think similarly, the spring summer was a good sort of crash course almost like we were kind of thrown in and we learned a lot by doing a lot Mm -hmm. um I think my approach now to the fall semester and moving forward is you know this is not a clean cut online course that we're teaching Mm. it's more that we're just teaching remotely like from afar Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and it's kind of taken off a lot of pressure I think to create these like asynchronous learning modules and stuff like that like we have to think about what is going to meet the students where they're at and what they need. And, you know, let's keep it simple. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I am just imagining myself as a student or a learner, I much, I would prefer, first of all, I would prefer the, obviously the in-class version, but even from, you know, even if the course is online, I would really look forward to and want to see my classmates through the virtual classroom or connect with my classmates in the chat box and see my teacher mm-hmm. in video. I would much prefer that over module. So I think it's a, a balance. Yeah. Um, and that hour or two you have, I, yeah, it's so important. Yeah. Just having that like moment when you touch base, mm-hmm. uh, it just connection, accountability. Yeah, totally connection. And yeah, maybe we're not all on our mics. We don't all have our videos on, but I think you can still have connection. Like mm-hmm. we're so used to connecting through like Gchat or Instagram or, you know, we grew up in a time of ICQ. Like that was- Actually, I, I didn't have ICQ. Oh my God. <laughs> I grew up in a time of MSN. Okay, people, that was- People know what that is. Yeah, that was a little, you know, that came after ICQ. ICQ yeah. was like grade five. Oh my gosh. I'm assigned grade seven, man. I, wait, I'm surprised you're even allowed on the computer in grade five. Well, I just kind of, <laughs> you know, got in there. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I think that, um, and for us too, like relationship building is so important and having relationships with my students is very important. Mm-hmm. So like, I really crave that weekly meeting and want to meet them and want to see them. So um, yeah, it's, it's going well so far. And um looking for ways to tweak and improve constantly as usual. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's going okay. 
speaking of relationship building, I think one of the tools that we've been able to use even before we had to do remote learning was podcasting. Mm-hmm. I think for me, at least like listening to a student's podcast is such a authentic and intimate way of like connecting with students, like just through their voice, uh, through those natural, you know, quirks in conversation, getting to know mm-hmm. what they think about an article, for example. And so this kind of brings us to what we're working on and sort of a quote unquote clinical question can you remind our listeners uh, what that clinical question is? Sure. So for our nursing students, this would be a clinical question. In our case, we could call it a research question. And mm-hmm. it sounds something like this. Do learner-generated podcasts improve college students' intellectual humility? Awesome. So that's the question that we're working with. We're curious to know if this particular intervention, learner-generated podcasts, have an impact on students' intellectual humility. Nice. So at this point in our research process, we're kind of looking at the literature. Yes. So we've been researching on this topic and we actually found two really great sources, uh, two very relevant and fairly current sources that might help us answer this research question. And so I'll introduce them. And I hope I'm not butchering anyone's names here. So we have one, uh, one source called uh, Links Between Intellectual Humility and Acquiring Knowledge by researchers Elizabeth J. Krumay-Mancoso, Megan Haggard, Jordan LaBeouf, and Wade Rowett. And we have another source called An Evaluation of Learner-Generated Content and Podcasting by Crispin Dale and Jelaine. Am I pronouncing her name right? Actually, Jelaine. Ghislaine Povey, I think. Um, So those are the two studies that we found through the library database that we're going to be looking at a little bit more deeply today. Um, I also wanna take this opportunity to say that the first source, I'll just call it the Kermary source, um, is a quantitative study. It's specifically a correlational study um, looking for the correlation, the relationship between variables. And uh, the Dale and Povey study is a qualitative study, specifically a phenomenology study that looks at um, this, a particular group's experience with a phenomenon, a situation or an event um, and, the Im- and their impact, the impact of that phenomenon and their mm-hmm. perception of that uh, event. So it's safe to say both are evidence-based research studies, nice. AKA primary sources. Yeah. So we're on the right track here. Mm-hmm, totally. Okay, so I'll start off summarizing the first source. It's uh, the Crumray Mancuso source with the multiple authors. Uh, in terms of their purpose, they're really trying to address a gap in the current theoretical knowledge base. So they do say in the article that very little research, quote, has examined intellectual humility as a potential mechanism for fostering knowledge acquisition. And so for me, I think what they're really trying to say is, you know, we have intellectual humility as an intellectual virtue. So a good in and of itself, Uh, but theoretically we can see how intellectual humility is connected to a person's ability to acquire or learn information. Uh, but there's been very little empirical evidence to actually show that. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is they look at 
different uh, like variables almost or factors that are associated with uh, the acquisition of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So maybe I can. They said, um, so the three that they list is the mm-hmm. cognitive, cognitive ability to gain new knowledge, um, meta knowledge, which is like accurate judgment of yourself and your limitations and thinking styles um, and learning goals. Uh, which contribute to one's predisposition to want to gain more knowledge. So those are the three kind of variables or indicators of knowledge acquisition. And essentially they're saying, look, there are a lot of studies done that suggest a connection to intellectual humility because, you know, intellectual humility has to do with um, being humble about one's thoughts and beliefs and ideas and therefore then open to new information and open to learning new knowledge. Um, But they're saying there's not enough in actual empirical data connecting these things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, I feel like you've summed it up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, we both summed it up. This is good. We both summed it up. And that's exactly, um, you know, I, when I did things, I know we're still in the summary section, but I do want to say like, they go into so much detail in yeah. their literature search. Um, sorry, not literature search, literature review. Uh, when they're detailing all the people who have published on this, um, you know, and I, it's something I really appreciate. They clearly know the context they're working in, and then they are able to identify the gap. The gap being, hey, no one actually has collected empirical data here. Um, and to extend your summary, Sirika, they go on to then say, okay, so. We're going to conduct a non-experimental correlational study to see if there's a correlation between this idea of uh, this, uh, sorry, not idea, indication of intellectual humility and these other indicators of knowledge acquisition. And they want to see if there's a correlation. Now, note a correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, um, but they think that they hypothesize that, you know, someone with a high level of intellectual humility are also more likely to learn and be ready to learn new knowledge. Um, So that's what they hypothesize. Mm -hmm. So then um, what do they do? (laughs) So just to recap, one of their studies um, that they do is to, to make this link a little bit more clear and to try to measure that link somehow between intellectual humility and this um, likelihood of knowledge acquisition and open-mindedness to new knowledge, or sorry, new information. They look at 170 college students that are all in the same psychology class. And what they did was to give these 170 college students in the same psych class, um, a bunch of scales to uh, uh, scales as in surveys to complete. I think there were in this specific study, um, yeah, they listed about five or different, five instruments, five different scales. It was like intellectual humility scale, intellectual openness scale, open-minded thinking scale, achievement goal scale, and social desirability scale. So they gave uh, these 170 college students, the same surveys um, and questionnaires. And I want to add that they got a, they got an assignment credit for this, these students who mm-hmm. completed the, these scales and questionnaires. Um, and so 
Um, in the world of research, we also call this, as our students will know, a cross-sectional um, survey because it's like a one-time survey that they're collecting at one point in time. And of course, um, as the researchers su suspected, there was a correlation between students' level of intellectual humility and then students' open-mindedness and flexibility to new knowledge. And they also saw a correlation to um, students' desire to master uh, knowledge. So the desire to understand and master new knowledge um, and the motivation for that. So they saw a correlation there. So that's kind of what they've done. Um, so now that we have a sense of what this study did, let's talk about some of our thoughts about this. Because I had some thoughts. Did you? Yeah. Um, in terms of like, as it relates to the sample size and things like that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what did you think about the fact that they only collected the data from 170 college students? Yeah. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't recall getting a description of those students, like what kind of school they went to, um, what they were studying. I feel like all those things can really, things can really influence a student's intellectual humility. Absolutely. You know, it's like, for example, I'm imagining uh, a student who goes into the humanities simply for the sake of acquiring knowledge and mastering knowledge. Uh, and she talks about, or the researchers talk about uh, the distinction between uh, a student who is mastery oriented in terms of their learning. So they have a growth mindset mm -hmm. versus a student who is, you know, uh, fixated on grades and performance. Because their, yeah. Because of their ego and their intellect. Mm -hmm. And so I think I would have really wanted to have a larger sample size to validate whether or not this is, you know, valid across the board. Um, and also to have a better sense of what kind of students they were even uh, inviting to be participants in this project. Mm -hmm. uh, I think those are all variables that influence, the, you know, how much intellectual humility they might have at that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. Like they said 170 college students, but my immediate question was, well, from where? North America, Canada, U.S.? Um, and if if it was the U.S., like which state, which region? Um and also like what school, like there's a lot of information there that I thought was um, that they weren't really transparent about in terms of the sample selection. This mm -hmm. is clearly what we call a convenience sample, right? Um, it's a convenient sample because the researchers tapped into a specific psychology class um, because it was conveniently accessible to them. And this, if you happen to be in that psych class, you obviously were systematically more likely to be chosen for this sample compared to someone who's not in that psych class or in a different state altogether. Mm -hmm. So there is a sampling bias here. This group cannot, and especially because we're, they started off, actually they started off not even talking about um, their population that they were interested in was not even college students per se. It was just people in general, because everyone is intelligent. And so they're just studying intellectual humility on in adults in general. So it's really hard to say that based on Sarika, like what you said, the small sample size in a very particular context can possibly be representative of all intellectual adults. Like I find that really hard to um, see. So it's not representative. And it's like yeah. you said, too small. Yeah, and I think, I 
I actually had overlooked the point that they were looking at adults generally, like mm. folks who decide to go to and who are able to go to and access post-secondary education, that, that in itself, uh, you know, you're in a very privileged position if you're able to, to manage that and figure it out. Exactly. So yeah, that's, that's interesting to think about. But to be fair, I mean, as I was reading it, I didn't think that the researchers were necessarily trying to say that we can apply this to the wider population. Like I, I did notice that they used a lot of like May language, like they were very careful about, you know, this is for this context, we are aware of these variables. Um, what did you think about that? Yes, Sarika, you're absolutely right. I, I don't think that they um, explicitly ever say anything about um, making claims like this can be generalized to the wider population. But given that it is a quantitative study um, and generally quantitative studies, their goal is to usually have a larger sample size as much as possible in order to confidently say the correlation we see here in the sample can should be the correlation we see in the wider population. And so um, I'm just making those connections in that sense. Um, but yeah, the authors don't um, explicitly make those kinds of claims, thankfully, uh, to say like this is, you know, will be seen in the rest of the world, essentially, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, to their credit, the authors do also recognize the limits of their study. Um, they do very transparently state that they, the students did receive some kind of assignment credit for this. I, I am curious to think, you know, maybe that could have also skewed the results. Like if I am a student who is in this class and I know that I'm getting some kind of credit like, I don't know if it was just a completion credit or if my instructor would have had access to my scales. Um, right. They don't talk about that, but they do say like they got credit for it. Um, I'm also thinking about the section where the authors um, do make clear that correlational studies have their limits, you know, at, at the onset of the, study they did say look there seems to be a relationship between these two variables we think that you know some kind of link may be there but they are right to say um towards the end they do say look it's not that one causes the other mm -hmm. um we're not going that far to make such claims more needs to be done to see if there's an actual causal relationship they note that on page 14 um so i really did appreciate that recognition of their limitation mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's also a really good point about uh, the fact that the students got credit for like completing, like being a part of this project. Um, they don't, like the researchers don't specify whether or not they anonymized all that data. Because mm, I can imagine if I were part of that sample, I might skew like how I answer those questionnaires just because course, I want to yeah. be perceived in a certain type of way. Right, yeah. like, I don't know. But yeah, I, I do think it's also really interesting that they're able to still manage to discuss the limitations of their study. Like I just uh, had copied this quotation from the text where she basically, the researchers basically say like, we recognize that the students with high GPAs may have, you know, have, have a skewed sense of their intellectual humility. Maybe they, they 
seem to come across like they don't have a very high IH, but it could be because of that. Like, I, I do appreciate the, the nuanced uh, representation of their, of their study. Of their analysis, right? Yeah. 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 I appreciated that too. Okay, let's move on to the next source then. Um, and I could start uh, by summarizing this one. So this is by Dale and Povey called An Evaluation of Learner-Generated Content and Podcasting. Um, and in this study, researchers were interested in learning more about student-created, student-generated, learner-generated podcasts. They um, offer us a brief overview of the literature around this and say, look, there's a lot of stuff being done about just using podcasts in general in higher education, but not a whole lot about student-created podcasts and what happens to that and the impact of that. So they uh, put together this qualitative study um, where they want to see how learner-generated podcasts influence the development of academic and practical skills, as they say, in order to then enhance student employability. Um, So what they do is they're very similar to the other, um, the first source that we were just looking at. Um, There's a convenience sample and they tap into one particular classroom. I am not 100% sure how many students because I don't know what the end value is because they don't tell us there is no Mm -hmm. end value, but we just know that there's a group of students um, in a particular class, I believe. And um, I think it's an elective course too. Like, yeah. To the honor students. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, it's for students in the tourism and hospitality management program, I think something like that. And then as part of their heritage management course, they were asked to create a podcast about um, a heritage site of their Mm -hmm. choice. Um, And then afterwards, they did focus group interviews of the students who podcasted to see how they felt about it. And they collected data, qualitative data of students' reflection blogs uh, that they kept over the time period that they were podcasting for. And they essentially did a thematic content analysis of the language used in the blogs and the language used in the interview to determine how students felt about podcasting. Mm -hmm. So that's what they did. Um, so thoughts <laughs> about how we feel about this research design, the research design, um, or anything in general, St- uh, yeah. we could start with research design. You could talk about, um, sample size. Um, I mean, there's so much, I took so many notes. Um, I think the fact that we don't know how many students is so problematic, um, yeah, it, I mean, it is problematic that I think for, yeah, for example, we don't know the sample size. It could have just been like 50, I think it actually, they do mention, they tuck it in later. It's like 15 blog entries or something, 15 individual blogs. Okay. Um, so does that mean 15 not, students? I, I don't know. It could yeah. have been 15 entries from three different people. <laughs> You know what I mean? Exactly. Okay. Um, so I think that's kind of problematic. I would love to have known, like, for example, the podcast itself wasn't evaluated. Mm. And I would just love to know, like, why they decided not to do that and why they didn't even look at the podcast transcripts as evidence of anything. Yeah. Like they chose yeah. very specifically to focus on these interviews and these blogs. Like but- student reflections about 
the podcasting experience only, yeah. right? Yeah. I find that really interesting too. Like why it, I'm sure there was a good reason, but whatever that reason is, they don't share it with us. I found that a little bit frustrating. Exactly. Yeah. I want to know a little bit more about your research design, your rationale. Um, like if you, if you told me, you know, we care more about their perception and the only way we can get at the perception is through that, that I would understand. Um, but arguably like the podcast transcripts in, in, in themselves can speak for how deep the students were learning. And that's one of the things mm. that they wanted to look at. Absolutely. I think the podcast would have been an excellent um, data entry for them, for, for them to use for, as part of this qualitative study. Um, I want to touch on your point about perception. I thought, um, going back to my criticism of the sources, kind of lack of transparency and clarity on things, they started off in the introduction giving me the impression that they were interested in looking at the relationship between student-generated podcasting and the actual improvement of skills. Mm -hmm. But when I looked at their data and what they've collected from their interviews and the kinds of questions they asked or kind of themes that they were discussing in their analysis, it just seemed like the whole thing was about how students felt about podcasting, but how students perceive or felt about podcasting does not necessarily mean improvement of skills. No, it doesn't. And that's another thing I think I flagged. I was like, what, like, what's the importance here of looking at perception? Is it because of the relationship to like self-efficacy? Like if they mm. perceive it as a positive learning experience, they're going to feel more confident going into it and perform better. Like, I don't know. I feel like there was just so much left to us as a reader to try to connect the dots and make sense of their study. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas I really wanted them to take control of it and say, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is what we found. I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Do you think there's a way for this group, if you were to give them some feedback on how they might improve their research design, is there something you might want to recommend for them? I would just say transparency mm -hmm. and thinking about um, in the same way that, you know, if we're like, if they were to apply for funding or, you know, approval from the research ethics board, they would have to be very clear about their research design and the choices that they're making. And why they made those choices. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. So I think just transparency mm -hmm. uh, because research, we do have to keep ethics, I think, top of mind. Mm -hmm. Especially uh, when you're dealing with humans. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think that one thing that they mention um, is they say, oh, you know what, next time we would love to do a longitudinal study to see the long-term impact of podcasting, which I think is quite fair. Um, because again, this was very similar to the other first source that we saw, cross-sectional. They kind of interviewed them at one point in time and that was it. Um, but I want to also add for them to consider probably doing this as a mixed methods approach mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and incorporating quantitative data. And I'm thinking marks can be a source of quantitative data. Like if they really want to see a change in a development of grades improvement after doing something like this, um, that can be a potential quantitative data that they can use to further corroborate their case. Um, or something uh, along the lines of uh, some kind of scale uh, that may somehow assess student learning in a different way. And it's not just student perception, it's actual student learning that they are assessing mm -hmm. might be helpful as well. 
Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of things that they could have done to sort of increase the like the quality of the information that they're generating. Like, I just feel very skeptical of a lot of the things that they're saying. I mean, for example, the fact that the podcast wasn't for marks. Uh, I wonder if that had an impact on the students' performance. Mm. And even what they said about the podcasting experience. Like, why, why put all your energy into an exercise that doesn't do anything for your grade? I understand Absolutely. that too, right? Absolutely. Um, we don't even know what interview questions they asked. Yeah, they didn't share that, did they? Yeah, we don't know who conducted the interview. So were the, were the students who are participating, were they even transparent and honest in their responses? Uh, the I also talk, wonder if... Like, I also wonder if the researchers were also their teachers. Exactly. Like, I need to know more. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would definitely skew the results if yeah. it was my own teacher trying to collect data and tapping into my transcript interviewing me. I, be, If I were the student, I'd be a little nervous. Yeah, there's a conflict um, of interest. There's a power dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... I, I want to say that this one is, it, you know, in the first uh, first source that we looked at, I mean, they it's not like it was perfect, but it was so thorough and, um, and therefore felt really reliable and compelling and valid in what they did. Whereas this one, I want to say it's because of, like you mentioned, the lack of transparency and clarity makes the overall piece so questionable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even if, the results that Kremre Mancuso and her research team, the results that they came to, um, even if they can't be applied to like the general population, I think what she does a really good job of is like leaving it open at the end and saying, you know, this is what you need to do next. And to be fair, I think that, you know, Dale uh, and his research partner, I think they do that as well. And I guess at the time, like, I think, they actually refer to their article as a practice paper. Oh, they do? Yeah, at the very top. And I looked up what that means. And it seems that it's something that comes out. It's like, basically, they refer to it as an evaluative summary of scientific and evidence-based information. Hmm. And I think they also squeezed in their own study. Um, but gotcha. it's usually when there's not a lot of information out there about the topic. Mm-hmm. So I do, you know, I, it does give me the impression that it was a bit rushed. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. And, yeah. So that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so our last question for um, that we could ask each other here is um, whether this, these, both of these sources are appropriate, relevant, and reliable enough to help us answer our research question. Uh, which one would we like to keep and which one do you think we're okay passing up? I'm definitely leaning towards Crumray Mancuso's research team. Yes, same. Um, yeah, I think Dale is good. Like if we were, if we had to do like a lit review, mm-hmm. like a literature review of what people have said already or what people mm-hmm. have done, mm-hmm. I think they're worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of answering that question, you know, can learner-generated podcasting actually increase students' intellectual humility? I definitely see Crumry Mancuso's article playing more into that. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Um, I'm also, after our analysis and our appraisal, critical appraisal of these sources, Crumry Mancuso and 
her team, um, that first source was one that I that really stood out to me as a compelling one. Um, and uh, Dale and Povey, it's interesting to see what people are doing, but ultimately don't think it's reliable enough to use in our in our study in our in our um, yeah to help us answer our question. Yeah. Okay, Sarika, so thank you so much for having this lovely conversation with me today and taking the time to do this. Uh, thank you so much for thinking deeply and connecting honestly with me. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.